Beach week came late this year, but Christmas has come early with the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court on Saturday afternoon. A joyous occasion all around with beer and boofing galore. We will examine what conservatives should learn from this wonderful turn of events. Then, Socialist Looney Tune Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says nothing at all. The New York Times attacks white women. White woman Bette Midler calls herself the N-word. And Christopher Columbus discovers America. I'm Michael Knowles, and this is The Michael Knowles Show. Mmm. Mm-hmm. Mmm. You know... I wish this were beer instead of flavored seltzer water, but unfortunately the Daily Wire didn't have any beer in its fridge. Nevertheless, I think this can stand in to celebrate for Associate Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Mm. wonder if anyone can shotgun a seltzer water. I don't think that's possible. Uh, this is a huge day. We have so much to talk about. If I weren't plugged in, I would get up on my desk and dance on top of it. Uh, before we do that, I've got some extremely exciting news. Today, The Daily Wire has launched the next chapter in Andrew Clavin's podcast series, Another Kingdom, performed by little old me, Michael Knowles. Today and on every following Monday, subscribers to The Daily Wire will be able to watch new episodes of season two. If you are not a subscriber, you will have to wait until Friday to watch new episodes, and only the first 15 minutes will be available to the public as a video. So what are you waiting for? Everybody gets the audio eventually, but only the first 15 minutes will be available as a video. In addition to my dramatic reading this season, we have added a dramatic visual component you will not want to miss. Here is a clip from the first episode of season two. Then... Finally, it was dark. Time to go. With the locket still in my hand, I rolled off the bed. There was nothing to pack. I had nothing with me. I ditched my phone so no one could trace me. I'd stopped at an ATM near LA to stock up on cash. I couldn't use credit cards. They could trace those too. I dismantled the GPS in my car. No internet, no social media. I was invisible. And I was utterly alone. I crossed the shit brown carpet to the door. I opened the door onto the night outside. There was Billiard Ball. He stood gigantically on the threshold, framed in the doorway with the parking lot lights glaring behind him. Before I could react, he jabbed me in the neck with a stun gun. The electric blast sent me reeling back into the room, convulsing, down to the floor. I dropped to the carpet, jerking and shuddering. My muscles were locked up, immobile. All I could do was lie there and judder and watch as Billiard Ball stepped calmly into the room and calmly shut the door behind him. His enormous shoulders were packed into a leather jacket. His muscles bulged through the thin sweater he wore underneath. He looked down at my quivering body without a smile, without a sneer, without any emotion at all. He hardly seemed interested in what he saw. He reached into his jacket and slid the little stun gun into his left inside pocket. Then he reached across into his right inside pocket and drew out a small leather case. Terror exploded inside me as I watched him unzip the case and deftly remove a syringe. I made a horrible, helpless, gurgling noise in my throat as I battled to get control of my body. It was no use. My muscles had been severed from my will. I tell you, I, I have the easiest job in the whole thing because I just go there and read the story and do the voices. The artwork, if you couldn't see it, if you're just listening, the artwork is so good and the story is really good. So I encourage you to head over to dailywire.com, subscribe, watch both the first and second seasons of Another Kingdom. So much to get to. Who do we thank first? 
for this Brett Kavanaugh thing. And I'm actually going to contradict conservative orthodoxy. But first, let me make a little money, honey. What's more conservative than that? ExpressVPN. With all the recent news about online security breaches, it's hard not to worry about where your data goes. Making an online purchase or simply accessing your email could put your private information at risk. We've just found out that China has been spying in, in all of our technology, has, uh, in the biggest servers in the country. Seriously, you would be insane to even check your email if you're not using a VPN. You're being tracked by social media sites, marketing companies, your mobile and internet provider. Use uh, ExpressVPN protect your privacy. It secures and anonymizes your internet browsing uh, by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Protect yourself with ExpressVPN. Costs less than seven bucks a month. Protect your online activity today. Find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L. That is three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash Michael to learn more and protect your privacy. I know what you're thinking, conservatives. You're thinking conservatives are supposed to be doer. We're supposed to be pessimistic. We're supposed to be sad. We're always supposed to be angry and upset, you know, because the culture is falling away and the West is decaying. But th- not today. Not today. With the confirmation, the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, it is hard to imagine how this could have turned out any better than it did. It just turned out so well. Didn't always have to. Pretty reckless game. Pretty risky. Jeff Flake could have screwed it all up for us. Could have wrecked the Supreme Court. Wrecked our electoral chances. But that's not how it worked out. So who can we thank for this? Who can we thank for being the conscience of a conservative and being the backbone of the GOP? Susan Collins, Lindsey Grambo, Cocaine Mitch McConnell, and Donald Trump. <laughs> if you had told me three years ago that the conscience of a conservative would be, certainly Trump, who knew that Trump was going to be a Republican, uh, Susan Collins, Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell, I would have laughed in your face, but they stood up. They were the backbone of the GOP. And actually the GOP's moral conscience here by saying, no, we're not going to let you destroy Brett Kavanaugh. We're not going to let you assassinate his character based on nothing, based on less than nothing, based on smears that have fallen apart time and time again. We're not going to let you do it. And Susan Collins articulated this beautifully, uh, in, in a speech that I, hope the entire country was watching. Probably they won't because she really came into the room and articulated what was so wrong with those proceedings. I found her testimony to be sincere, painful, and compelling. I believe that she is a survivor of a sexual assault. Nevertheless, the four witnesses she named could not corroborate any of the events of that evening gathering. I do not believe that the claims such as these need to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. Nevertheless, fairness would dictate that the claims at least should meet a threshold of more likely than not. Duh. Yeah, of course. I mean, thank you for putting it that way. It's true. It's not a criminal proceeding, although the Democrats certainly were treating it as one. So sure, it doesn't need to be beyond a reasonable doubt, but at least more likely than not, at least she should, the, the accusers should try to keep their stories straight 
for more than five minutes at a time, not get caught in a multitude of lies. Yeah, of course you shouldn't ruin a man's career with a decade of unquestioned integrity as a federal judge before that staff secretary to the president, uh, deputy independent counsel under the Starr investigation. The guy has an unimpeachable track record. You don't get to ruin that guy's life just because, just because you want to. So we have to thank Susan Collins. We also have to thank the Democrats who filibustered Neil Gorsuch because this caused a uh, uh, cocaine Mitch to go nuclear on Neil Gorsuch. People forget this. They get a little confused on what the uh, nuclear option means where, you know, the nuclear option was first invoked by Harry Reid. He, he invoked it in 2013 because he wanted to ram through more of Barack Obama's judges at the lower level. So he said, nope, we no longer need a 60 vote majority to confirm judges. We're going to bring that down to a simple majority. As long as you get a simple majority, that's fine. We can confirm the judges. And for, for years, senators had talked about doing this, but they always backed away because they knew that when they're out of power, this is a very bad thing. And, but Harry Reid said, I don't care. I'm ramming Obama's judges through. That's fine. Cocaine Mitch, what are your thoughts on that? Once again, Senate Democrats are threatening to break the rules of the Senate, break the rules of the Senate in order to change the rules of the Senate. And over what? Over what? Over a court that doesn't even have enough work to do? The majority leader promised, he promised, over and over again, that he wouldn't break the rules of the Senate in order to change them. If you want to play games, set yet another precedent that you'll no doubt come to regret. Say to my friends on the other side of the aisle, you'll regret this, and you may regret it a lot sooner than you think. You're going to regret it, my little friends on the other side of the aisle. You're going to regret it, my little friends. <laughs> a lot sooner than you think. A lot sooner. Ha, hoo, ha. That's uh, cocaine Mitch McConnell in 2013. Prophetic words. Totally prophetic words because then when it came up with Neil Gorsuch, don't forget, a lot of Democrats during this Kavanaugh circus have said, well, look, Kavanaugh's just a bad guy. Look, we weren't this bad about Neil Gorsuch. First of all, yes, you were. You tried to filibuster him. But second of all, the reason they didn't create a hullabaloo and accuse him of ga gang rape in the 80s is because Neil Gorsuch was replacing Scalia. He was replacing the originalist judge, so it didn't swing the balance of the court. Ah, who knows, actually, if Gorsuch is as rock-ribbed as Scalia. Time will tell. Uh, so it didn't change the balance of the court. Now that you're replacing Anthony Kennedy, the swing vote, who sided with the left of the court on very important matters, uh, you know, like the gay marriage decision of Burgefell, for example, when, you, uh, when you're replacing that guy, it's much different because then you, you'll actually have a conservative majority, an originalist majority on the court. So they went after them. Uh, he goes, they go after Gorsuch, they filibuster Gorsuch. Mitch McConnell says, well, remember when I said that you were going to regret this sooner than you think? It's, and now it's sooner than you think. So he did it. He went nuclear for Supreme Court nominees. And that's how we were able to get uh, Judge Kavanaugh through. It's a great, uh, a, a great turn of events for us that actually didn't hinge on this nomination. It was on the last one. So that's great. We can thank uh, the Democrats who filibustered too. We should also not forget, by the way, future Democratic presidential nominee, Michael Avenatti. <laughs> you know, the creepy porn lawyer. The creepy porn lawyer played an integral role in this because he exposed the Democrat strategy of just finding random 
unfalsifiable, unverifiable allegations from 50,000 years ago. He exposed it because he did it in his Avenatti way. You know, Dianne Feinstein, Deborah Katz, they were a little more subtle when they, when they dr- dragged up uh, Christine Ford and at the 11th hour after the hearings were over, leaked her complaint to the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, they were a little more subtle. Christine Ford is a more subtle character. When it got to Julie Swetnick, Michael Avenatti's client, you know, she's accusing him of being like a leather daddy gang rapist crime boss in the 80s. That one seems so ridiculous. The New York Times agrees. They wrote, quote, the tide seemed to turn, oddly enough, when a third woman emerged with even more extreme allegations. Michael Avenatti, a brash and media savvy California lawyer who has been careening from one Trump administration brush fire to another, produced a statement from a woman alleging that Judge Kavanaugh in high school attended parties where women were gang raped. The woman, Julie Swetnick, said she herself was gang raped at one such party, though not by the judge. And the woman kept going to the parties for some reason. Very, not a very smart woman, apparently, if, uh, if any of those allegations had even the whiff of truth to them, which obviously they do not. Alan Dershowitz agrees with this, famed liberal lawyer Alan Dershowitz. Uh, he tweeted this out. He said, Kavanaugh owes an enormous debt to Michael Avenatti, who may have turned the tide in his favor by diluting Ford's compelling accusation with an implausible story. Now, he uses that phrase, compelling allegation. I'm not convinced by that. I don't really see why the allegation is compelling. It came after 30 years of silence and into a vague allegation six years ago, the first time Kavanaugh's name was floated, and then it then the story changed a few different times. By the time she wrote to Diane Feinstein, it changed when she took the polygraph. It changed when she talked to the Washington Post. It was refuted by every person that she claims was there, including her lifelong friend, Leland Kaiser, a lady, Lady Leland Kaiser. It's not just the guys here. A woman refuted her claims too. So I don't really think it's compelling at all, and it changed a lot. Nevertheless, he's right. It was a much more subtle accusation. So you got to thank, uh, you got to give credit where credit is due, and thank Mr. Avenatti for that. The other, the other uh, group that you have to thank, the other uh, incident that you have to thank, is Ford's changing story. Because if Ford was able to keep her story straight. Uh, this probably would have been a lot stronger. Even though it was 36 years after the fact, even though she'd never told anybody about it, if she could have kept the story straight, it probably would have been stronger. But she couldn't keep her story straight. Initially, it was four boys in the room. Then it was two boys in the room. Then there were four people there. Then five, six, seven people there. Then uh, she named all the people. They refuted her. So then she said, okay, well, there was another person who I forget. She couldn't say who drove her there. She couldn't say who drove her home. And then she said she had to, she, she couldn't testify in Washington because she was afraid of flying. And she was afraid of flying because of confined spaces, uh, the fear of confined spaces stemming from this incident 36 years ago. Then it turns out she flies all over the place, flies to French Polynesia, flies to Hawaii, flies to New Hampshire, flies all over. So that doesn't sound good. An ex-boyfriend of hers came out and said they used to fly in propeller planes in Hawaii and she never expressed a fear of flying ever. So that part fell apart as well. Then she says the polygraph test was this long, long test. It took, she told her whole life story. It was, she was so nervous about it. Then we find out she knows a lot about polygraph tests. And the polygraph she took was only two questions. And she volunteered to take it. And, she, and her team paid the polygraph examiner to give the test. That also didn't hold up very well. Then the one I think that finally cracked it was she said, I, I had a second door installed on my home when we renovated it because I was so afraid of confined spaces stemming from this 36-year-old allegation. And this came up during a 2012 marriage counseling session. Turns out she filed to get the second door in 2008, four years earlier. 
for a marriage counseling office for a room that she rented out to Google interns and to college students. The story just fell apart, which is why I disagree with Professor Dershowitz. I don't find it compelling at all. But uh, if that story hadn't fallen apart, I think you'd still see the Democrats focusing on her. They wouldn't have started talking about Brett Kavanaugh, you know, throwing ice at a New Haven bar. Uh, so the other thing that's a little weird about this now and really diminishes Ford's credibility is she said she's not going to pursue her charges any further. She, initially, she said Brett Kavanaugh not only groped her, but tried to rape her and not only tried to rape her, but almost killed her. And now she says, no, it's all, now he's on the court. I don't care. That's, that's a little strange, isn't it? And that can be, you can impeach a judge. Why doesn't she want to impeach the judge? Her lawyer, Deborah Katz, said that she did not want the judge impeached. That's a little strange, isn't it? I wonder why that is. She the reason that she doesn't want the judge impeached is because now it's not politically advantageous. That's why. There's no, what's the advantage now to doing it? There, he got through, he managed to squeak through. She doesn't want any more spotlight on her changing story. So now it's over. And I think Democrats realize that it's killing them in the polls. So they, they think that they have to move on from this. It's, uh, I, I hope forever we can retire the word credible, you know, for like the next, at least the next six months or so. Um, but what this really gets to, this was highlighted by a writer for the Colbert show, uh, Ariel Dumas is they don't care whether Christine Ford's story is true, which story would be true. I don't know. They don't care about some story from when he was at Yale and he allegedly whipped it out at a party that other people there refute. Uh, they don't care about uh, Julie Swetnick, certainly. They don't care about any of that. What they wanted to do is ruin his life. And handed to Ariel Dumas, the writer for The Colbert Show, she said, quote, whatever happens, I'm just glad we ruined Brett Kavanaugh's life. Because that's all they wanted to do. That's all they were after. They didn't like him. They didn't like him because it was an originalist. He's an originalist judge. He's going to change the balance of the court. They tried all these different tactics. They finally called him a rapist and a near killer and a this and a that. And at least they ruined his life. And that's what they were really after, to ruin this guy's life. For them, it reminds me of, uh, it reminds me of the, the Godfather, you know, when they, they talk about killing and murder. This is, this is the Michael Corleone theory of judicial confirmations. Uh, Mr. Corleone, what are your thoughts? It's not personal, Sonny. It's strictly business. It's not personal, Brett. It's not personal. That's my father, Brett. That's not me. Strictly business. It rem you know, in The Godfather Part Two, Hyman Roth, uh, the Lee Strasberg, the Jewish gangster is there. He said, this is the business we've chosen. They treat it like business. And then the minute that the deal is over, they move on. So, oh, okay, sorry we ruined your life, but you know, you know, it's business. We're, gonna, we're not going to press, we're not going to pursue these charges any further. We're not going to try to impeach you. It's just business. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's just business. It's just shallow, hackish, political business. Pretty sad. Um, the question you have to ask yourself here is, is this the kind of politics that you want? Is this, do you want the kind of government where anybody who's put up for anything has their lives ruined? They have to either be squeaky clean or even if they are squeaky clean, they're still not good enough. They're still, you know, if you're Mitt Romney, you're a dog killer, gay bashing, whatever. And if you're Brett Kavanaugh, who's lived an un unimpeachable life, then you just become a rapist because of fantasies concocted out of whole cloth. Do you really want this kind of politics? No. I might suggest a detente. I might suggest a detente because what you get in this politics 
is only the worst people. It's, it's only people who feel no shame. This is why Bill Clinton was so successful in politics, is the Clintons are immune from shame. They cannot feel it. So they accuse Bill Clinton of, you know, having sexual affairs in the Oval Office. He says, I'm telling you, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. What was it? A month later, two months later, like n- five seconds after he says that to the American people, he, he sits down in that next press conference. He said, Look, I might have had some sexual relations with her, mm, but I'm telling you the truth now. Mm. And they just, it, he can do that because he feels no shame. It, actually, this is an advantage sometimes when it works with Republican candidates. You know, President Trump ran on this. He said, yep, I slept with a ton of women who weren't my wife. Uh, sleeping with my friend's wives is one of the highlights of life. And I'm a playboy billionaire. Don't care. Don't worry about it. And it really makes you immune from attacks because they try to attack you. And he said, yeah, right. I wrote about that in my book. Barack Obama did this in his first book, The uh, Dreams from My Father. He says, yeah, I did a bunch of coke. I did a bunch of blow. I, I uh, smoked a lot of pot. I ate a bunch of dogs in Indonesia. I mean, he outlays it p- pretty clearly. He says uh, he palled around with communists. And by the end of the book, because he's exposed everything to you, you're not afraid of him because you see him and you see he's not an intimidating guy. Certainly Barack Obama's not an intimidating guy. And so you don't fear him anymore. But you get you get bad people this way. It would be nice if we could have a little bit more of, uh, you know, Washington, Hamilton. That'd be, that would be, I'd, I'd enjoy that. James Madison, John Adams. But you don't get that in a politics where you are going to truly ruin somebody's life. I'm not, uh, I'm not letting the press off the hook for, some, for their treatment of Democrats over the years where they would treat the Democrats way nicer. They'd cover up for Democrats. They would, it was truly a conspiracy. But if you could have a little bit of an agreement between the, between the Republicans and the Democrats to say certain things are off limits, high school rumors in yearbooks, that's off limits. If, if you, you might have a more respectable politics, just a suggestion. Um, but that's not what you're going to get. So you're only going to get people who are shameless, who are know-nothings, who have nothing to lose, which of course brings us to Alexandria Occasional Cortex. I'm stealing Steve Hayward's line. Alexandria Occasional Cortex. She went on MSNBC over the weekend to give her agenda if she is elected to Congress. And I don't think I could have said it any better myself. Take it away, Alexandria. You're going in, there's a time where people were talked about how it's broken and it's mm-hmm. so polarized, both of which I think are true. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're also coming really as an outsider at a moment where I think people like are watching what happened today and want to storm the gates. And yeah. you're going to actually do that. Mm-hmm. So what that's, what's, mm-hmm. what's your plan here? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with changing our strategy around governance. You know, there's a lot of inside baseball and inside the beltway, as you, you know, you, you always hear that term thrown around. But there are very few organizers in Congress, and I do think that organizers operate differently. It's a different kind of strategy. And what it is is really about organizing and, and really thinking about that word, organizing, segmenting people, being strategic in their actions, in really bringing together a cohesive strategy of putting pressure on the chamber instead of only focusing on the pressures inside the chamber. That's a really interesting thought. That was, she answered nothing. She didn't say any, what did she say? Zero. But this is why the Democrats have to revert to brutal passions, sex and race basically, and say, yeah, we have the same skin color. Vote for me. Yeah, we, we have the same genitals. Vote for me. Well, you have to, cause well, well, grunt, grunt, grunt. It's because they, they aren't making any arguments. They're not advancing any agenda other than the, the, uh, 
increase of their own power, which is why they're socialists. Socialism is just taking power away from people and giving it to the government. And they're doing, they say, get me, 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 me. They, they can't make an argument for that. You can't make an argument to somebody to give away all of their freedom and property, right? You, you, have, to, you have to appeal to these base, brutal passions. And it's really sad because there isn't a public debate being had about socialism. It's just uh, uh, the identity politics and the intersectional politics of the left. And this brings us to not the dumbest article on the internet today, this actually transcends that. This, this is a little higher than that. This is the dumbest article on the internet this month. The award goes to Alexis Grenell from the New York Times. Uh, the, the column is, White women, after a confirmation process where women all but, uh, no, I'm sorry, white women come get your people. That white women come get your people is the uh, head, head of it. The too long didn't read is that white women are the cause of all the problems in the world. Here's how she begins. After a confirmation process where women all but slit their wrists, letting their stories of sexual trauma run like rivers of blood through the Capitol, the Senate still voted to confirm Judge Brett Kavanaugh. And I wonder why men call them hysterical. <laughs> I wonder why they almost slit their wrists in the trauma of blood. I think what you mean is that George Soros's paid protesters ran and shrieked throughout the Capitol like a bunch of hysterical children. She goes on. Alexis goes on. With the exception of Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, all the women in the Republican conference caved, including Senator Susan Collins of Maine, who held out till the bitter end. These women are gender traitors, to borrow a term from the dystopian TV series, The Handmaid's Tale. This, by the way, they can only reference trashy modern TV shows because they don't know anything about literature or history or philosophy. So like, all, this is why people, uh, you know, when they're discussing myth these days, they can only ever talk about Harry Potter and Star Wars. That's all millennials ever talk. They say, you're like uh, Dumbledore. I don't know. I haven't read Harry Potter since I was nine. But that's all they can reference because they, ha- they don't have any other cultural inheritance to, to draw on. So she says, you know, to borrow a term from The Handmaid's Tale, to borrow a term from Family Guy, I don't know, you're talking about some trash TV. Get over you. Or like, read a book. Read a book, lady, and then, you know, you can bring out that cultural inheritance. She goes on. They've made standing by the patriarchy, a uh, standing against the patriarchy, or by the patriarchy, a full-time job. Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, whose response to a woman telling him she was raped was, I'm sorry, call the cops. So the patriarchy thing, we'll get to that in a minute. But the Lindsey Graham, Lindsey Graham, someone comes up to him and says, I'm, I was raped. What do you expect him to say? What should he say? What? You should call the cops. That's a horrible crime. That's a heinous crime. You should go to the cops. If you go, my sister was murdered. Like, uh, yeah. Have you told the cops about that? They should investigate that. Maybe prosecute the guy who did it. Find the guy who did it. But they're they're just using it. They're they're just using the claim of sexual assault, which has been defined down to almost nothing at this point. A, uh, an unwanted kiss is a sexual assault. Some guy comes up to you at a bar and you're talking and he tries to kiss you. That's a sexual assault by some definitions. And uh, they're just trying to use that to weaponize that, to borrow the left's term, uh, to tell Republicans to shut up and to keep originalists off the court. Uh, really pathetic. The, the article concludes, recently, Ms. Conway even weaponized, I told you there's that word, her own alleged sexual assault in service of her boss, by discouraging women from feeling empathy with Christine Blasey Ford or anger at Judge Kavanaugh. She's attacking uh, Kellyanne Conway, 
advisor to the president for doing exactly the same thing that the left has been doing. And it seems like she's not even believing her. Or she's judging her skeptically about this. Um, really, really dumb column. That, that just, it's just like the o- Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York Times columns, which is, I can't make an argument. I can't advance an argument. I'm relying on facts that simply are not so. I'm relying on fantasies. So I am just going to appeal to brutal instincts and passions. Me, woman, you, woman. Uh, 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 bad men. That, ooh, me, me, swarthy, you, swarthy. Us, white, bad. I mean, that's basically the argument that they're making. And it's all of the sophistication of people whose greatest cultural achievement that they can draw on is The Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> uh, and by the way, uh, Bette Midler, the performer, the singer, the actress, Bette Midler, really highlighted this very well uh, last week when she tweeted out a quote from one of the worst John Lennon songs. She said, women are the N-word of the world. Women are the N-word of the world. This is from a, one of the worst John Lennon songs that he, he wrote with Yoko Ono. And the song goes, women, woman is the N-word of the world. Yes, she is. Think about it. If, you, if your second line is think about it, your first line isn't that good. <laughs> no, man, but just think about it. <clears throat> so that's her. Woman, women are the N-word of the world, raped, beaten, enslaved, married off, worked like dumb animals, denied education and inheritance, enduring the pain and danger of childbirth and life in silence for thousands of years. They're the most disrespected creatures on earth. But we know that those numbers aren't so. We know that that isn't true. I think we talked about this a few days ago. The more men are raped in the United States than women. Uh, men are more likely to suffer fatal injuries on the job. Men are much more likely to kill themselves, three and a half times more likely, I think. Um, it, it is true that women are supposed to be the only ones to give childbirth, but don't forget Planned Parenthood now says that some men have uteruses. So I don't know, maybe, maybe men can do that too now. It's, it's just base passions that are totally ignorant of reality. Uh, you know, there are lies, damned lies, and statistics. Sometimes statistics tell you something about the truth. And this is lies versus statistics. So, uh, obviously, that that isn't a good argument going into November. Obviously, that case isn't going to work. The problem runs so much deeper than just politics, though. It runs so much deeper than just politics or culture. Oh, I'm going to have to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube. But we've got to talk about one of the greatest stories of the last six months. It's almost as good as Brett Kavanaugh being confirmed to the Supreme Court, which is that grievance studies, you know, women's studies and African-American studies and this studies and that studies are uh, these hoaxers were able to get journals, serious academic journals, to publish their hoax articles just using random left-wing buzzwords. And they were able to get them through because grievance studies are a farce and most of university campuses are farcical at this point. Uh, We will get to some of the highlights of that. Then we got to talk about how great Christopher Columbus is. But only if you go to dailywire.com. If you're on Facebook and YouTube, head on over. You got to do it. Plus, now you get another kingdom out of it. This is a good deal. You get to hear another kingdom and see another kingdom uh, days and days early. Go to dailywire.com. Why? You know, you get all the shows. You get to ask questions in the mailbag. You get to ask questions in the conversation. Here it is. Here it is, folks. This is going to be a long beach week if you don't have a leftist tears tumbler. This is going to be, PJ and Squee are going to be the only ones who survive when you drown in those leftist tears that have been unleashed. Because, by the way, 
we're just celebrating today that the guy got on the court. What happens when, uh, I don't know, some Chevron deference cases come up? Ooh, is that not sexy enough for you? How about some cases that get to the legality and constitutionality of abortion? Hmm? What happens then? Are you just going, mm-mm-mm-mm-mm? You're going to lift a hundred leftist tears tumbler kegs over your head in celebration of, uh, of this, this wonderful achievement of ours, of this wonderful freaking achievement. It's going to be really, really good. Go to dailywire.com. We'll be right back with a lot more and a celebration of Christopher Columbus. The grievance studies thing is so wonderful. One, you know, there are, there's women's gender and sexuality studies, ethnicity, race, and migration studies, African-American studies, this is and that. And, uh, you know, all of the grievance studies majors really like the thing that they're aggrieved about. You know, so they, they, always, they really like um, gender studies. They really like women, you know, women and gender studies. African-American studies is really complimentary of the contributions of African-Americans. The only one that this is not true for is American studies, which is a discipline devoted to denigrating America in literature and history all over the place. So I really like this because when I was in college and shortly after college, I was running a blog with a buddy of mine where we would just take out quotes from peer-reviewed gender studies journals that are so absurd on their face. And we would put them up. I think it's still up there. I think it's at um, genderstudiesdepartment-blog.tumblr.com. I believe they still have it up. It was so, they would talk about things like vegetarian eco-feminisms and uh, the role of the werewolf as queer pederast in Harry Potter. They had a book called Queering Elementary Education, which I think is a crime. I'm not sure. I haven't checked out the federal laws recently, but I think that's a crime. Or Queering the Non slash Human. And it's just like total nonsense. So these guys, uh, their names are Helen Pluckrose, James Lindsay, and Peter Bogosian have contributed nonsense articles to grievance studies journals, and they've gotten them published. So one paper, which was published in the journal called Sex Roles, said that the author had conducted a two-year study involving thematic analysis of table dialogue to uncover the mystery of why heterosexual men like to eat at Hooters. So <laughs> just, just picture that image of what that two-year study is. I think I've done that two-year study, actually. I've probably done that study for about 15 years, and I'm still doing it. I'm really getting to the heart of why men like to eat at Hooters. Another one of these was from the uh, Feminist Geography Journal. <laughs> I don't know what separate. I actually, I could make a few jokes here, but they're, they're not really that nice to think about. I guess there could be a feminist geography. Use your imagination. Uh, it parsed the quote, human reactions to rape culture and queer performativity at dog parks in Portland, Portland, Oregon. The, uh, the human reaction to rape culture at, at dog parks and, uh, and, you know, if you've ever been to a dog park, I think you can see a lot of heteronormativity there. Although, I don't know, sometimes dogs have come up to me, too. My, uh, my, my leg is an example of some of the uh, uh, non-heteronormativity, maybe, that uh, the canines can exhibit. And, um, and then there was another one who was published in Journal of Feminist Social Work. This is the best one of all. It was titled, <laughs> Our Struggle is My Struggle. And... <laughs> 
What it did is it scattered left-wing ideology and little left-wing terms into a rewriting of Hitler's Mein Kampf. <laughs> because Mein Kampf means my struggle. So it updates the, the book as uh, our struggle is my struggle and just changes it around a little bit. Really excellent work, guys. I got to tell you something. When I published that blank book, I thought that I would get to be the, the troller in chief for a little while. Helen Pluckrose, James Lindsay, Peter Bogosian, my hat goes off to you. It's really wonderful because it, uh, it, it really shows the universities for what they are and especially these departments for what they are. One question that people are asking is whether we should abandon the universities at this point if they're just so far gone that there's no way to get them back. I don't think so at all. I don't think so at all. That's what the left wants us to think. These people, you know, who read about how our struggle is my struggle and the heteronormativity of dog porks, they, they want us to believe it's a lost cause and to abandon the universities. They wanted us to do that to the mainstream media in the 80s and 90s. Oh, we should, why would we have a conservative news channel? No, no, no one wants that. No one would watch that. Cut to the 1990s, Fox News becomes one of the biggest names in news, the biggest cable news network by far. Uh, same thing in public policy. Remember they told us in 2015, 2016, Republicans give it up. It's Hillary's turn. She's going to win. There's no way. There's no way Trump could win. He can't win. Don't even vote. Don't even go. You're not, look, we're not, we're going to get Hillary. We're going to get some left-wing judges. They're going to get rid of the First and Second Amendment. But what are, you can't do anything. And then we all just did something. And then it worked. I think they, I, I've mentioned this theory before. The left is like the opposite of sand people. They don't hide their numbers. They exaggerate their numbers. They like, it's like one person just hops left and right and left and right and makes it seem like there are a lot of them. I think the majority of the American people have a basic conservatism. Lower C conservatism, maybe it doesn't totally line up with uh, Edmund Burke or John Locke or whatever, but there is a, a basic conservatism to the American people. And when you give them the opportunity to watch Fox News or you give them the opportunity to see conservatives through new media, Daily Wire is a good example of this. They're going to do it. They're, you're going to get huge ratings. You're going to get huge numbers. People just want the opportunity. Same thing in public policy. When you give them the opportunity to vote for uh, building a wall, hopefully we're going to get that wall sometime soon, but it not to enforce immigration laws, to deport people who should be deported, to get serious about those things, to care, to care about the American worker, try to protect American jobs, uh, to get serious about our enemies abroad, to get serious about the economy, just institute a pro-growth deregulation agenda. Basic things, when you give them that opportunity, even in the package of Donald Trump, who has a lot of flaws to him, they're going to go for that. There's a lot, there are a lot more people out there. You know, the, the left, the line was always, in the 1970s, the media would write, they'd say, I don't, I don't know a single person who voted for Richard Nixon. Nixon won in a landslide <laughs> twice. Uh, so, oh, I don't know a single person who voted for Donald Trump. There are a lot of people out there. And there's a demand for this at colleges. There's a demand when conservative speakers come to campus, which, you know, I, I get to participate in that. I get to go to campuses too when groups request that uh, me and other people like me come and speak there. There's a huge demand at think tanks. There's a huge demand for summer programs. I've gone to great programs, Hertog Foundation, Heritage Foundation, were able to offer a supplemental education in the great books, in civics, in uh, po political philosophers that are not covered at a lot of colleges. There's a demand for that. We just have to fight for that. And if the left isn't going to give our guys tenure, we got to fight back harder. We, we shouldn't cede them an inch and we should continue to expand our own academic programs because they work and because there's a demand for them and because 
gr those supplemental academic groups lead to great changes down the road. This Kavanaugh moment is the perfect example of this because 40 years ago, the Federalist Society didn't exist. The idea of originalist judges, textualist, textualist judges, judges who actually read the Constitution, not just constitutional law, but the Constitution, what it meant publicly at the time that it was ratified. That was a radical, novel idea. Now you've got the Federalist Society giving a list of two dozen judges, and we're just knocking them down. Appellate judges, we've got uh, two Supreme Court judges now from, from that list. These can have a huge impact even decades later. So we should not see it an inch. They want us to, but we shouldn't do it. Before we go, I know we're running out of time. I do have to talk about this wonderful day. Am I talking about Indigenous Peoples Day? No, I'm talking about Columbus Day, one of my favorite holidays of the year. Christmas, Easter, Columbus Day. It's very, I, how can I rank them? How can I rank those days? Uh, Columbus, Ohio, named for the discoverer himself, no longer celebrates Columbus Day. They renamed it Indigenous Peoples Day. There were programs in Los Angeles, Seattle, cities across the country to rename Columbus Day Indigenous Peoples Day, which is absurd. President Trump recognizes the absurdity of this. I wake up today, you know, I kind of check my Twitter, see what's going on, and I see President Trump tweeted this. He said, quote, Christopher Columbus's spirit of determination and adventure has provided inspiration to generations of Americans. On Columbus Day, we honor his remarkable accomplishments as a navigator and celebrate his voyage into the unknown expanse of the Atlantic Ocean. I'm about ready to abolish the Congress and just name him president for life. Can we, if he has the moral clarity to talk about how great Christopher Columbus is, get it to be the number one trend on Twitter. Like I want it to be Charles II, go in there. I, ab I abolish the parliament. I am the king. I'm, all, I'm this close to that. I'm not quite there yet, but I'm very, very close. Because it's absolutely right. This Indigenous Peoples Day nonsense has... Uh, uh, come up because of a fiction that the new world was so orderly and peaceful and probably utopian before European settlers got there. It's total nonsense. Five years before Christopher Columbus came to the new world shores, the Aztec empire slaughtered 84,000 people in the course of four days for the consecration of Tenochtitlan. You know, I guess if you're going to slaughter 80,000 people, Tenochtitlan's a good reason to do it, you know. Uh, that was five years before Columbus arrived. We were told Columbus brought murder, brought genocide, brought rape. There was plenty of genocide going on before then. Uh, the suggestion that we name the day after the indigenous peoples, which indigenous peoples are you going to name it after? You're going to name it after the Comanche? How about the Comanche? They're an indigenous people. Or will you name it after the Apache from whom the Comanche stole their land? Who are you going to name it? Are you going to name it after the uh, Caribbean Islanders? which gave us the word cannibal into our Western languages because we discovered cannibalism among them, vicious cannibals. When, when Columbus pulled up and met the very peaceful, nice Taino Indians, he uh, noticed that they had a lot of scars on their body because of these vicious warriors from the Isla de Caribe. How about the Iroquois Confederacy? Also cannibals, by the way. Uh, well, how about them? Should we name, are we going to name it after those indigenous peoples? They seemed pretty warlike. They seemed pretty brutal, pretty savage. Who are you going to name it after? It's absurd. Now, that question is responded to often on the left, and they say, well, that's just whataboutism. Yeah, they might not have been good, but Columbus wasn't good either. Columbus was a genuinely wonderful man. He was a great man. He was devoutly religious. He was, in, in many ways, Carol Delaney has a great book on this, uh, 
looking uh, to create a crusade to go retake the Holy Land because Christians at the time thought that the apocalypse was near. They saw the fall of Constantinople. They saw a lot of signs in the skies. Uh, he wanted to go over to the great Khan in the, in the east, uh, you know, the descendants of Genghis Khan, and convert those who were not already converted to Christianity and, uh, and also, you know, fund all of these excursions with uh, gold and spices and riches and a new trade route. He, uh, he, he said his prayers constantly, had the young sailors say his prayers constantly on the voyage. He was accused of his political rival, Francisco de Bobadilla, of being brutal to the Indians. We have no evidence that that actually happened. In fact, we have a lot of evidence that Columbus was particularly kind to the Native Americans. It would be like saying, you know, Hillary Clinton wrote mean things about Donald Trump, so Trump was a terrible guy. No, he was his political rival. You, you can't take that as gospel truth. And we know from uh, Bartolome de las Casas, one of the great defenders of the native peoples, that uh, Columbus was particularly kind to them. Uh, in Columbus's own writings, he complains about the Spaniards who were mean to the Indians and who would, you know, cut them up and be br uh, brutal to them. Did, was Columbus perfect? No, of course not. He uh, threw, in many ways, the weakness of his government. He enslaved certain native peoples. He also adopted certain native peoples, though. He raised as a son, uh, the son of an Indian friend that he had made on one of his voyages. Uh, so obviously the reality is much more complicated. But I think the reality points to a great man. And more than anything, more than all of that, even if he were a mean guy, which there's no evidence that, they, there was, that he was, and there's a lot of evidence that he was a very good guy, even if he were a mean guy, he is the reason that you're here. He is the reason the United States exists. He is the reason that the West came over here, settled the land, made it, uh, improved the agriculture, improved the uh, systems of justice in this country, and spread those systems of justice around the world. Led to the most prosperous, charitable, free, equitable, just society in the history of the world. The world is so much better off for this man having lived. He was the greatest navigator of his age. He was one of the bravest human beings ever to walk the earth. He led to the greatest civilization in the history of the world. He is a good guy. And in case I haven't driven it home, my feelings on Christopher Columbus, Tony Soprano, take it away. We're having a discussion about Christopher Columbus. They would make fine servants. With 50 men, we could subjugate them. Subjugate? And make them do whatever we want. That doesn't sound like a slave trader to you? George Washington had slaves, the father of our country. Well, what's your point? His history teacher, Mr. Cushman, is teaching your son that if Columbus was alive today, he would go on trial for crimes against humanity like Milosevic and, you know, Europe. Your teacher said that. It's not just my teacher, it's the truth. It's in my history book. So you finally read a book and it's bull Tony. Look, you had to walk in Columbus's shoes to see what he went through. People thought the world was flat for crying out loud. Then he lands on an island with a bunch of naked savages on it. I mean, that took a lot of guts. You remember when we went to Florida, the heat and those bugs? No, well, like it took guts to murder people and put them in chains. He was a victim of his time. Uh, who cares? It's what he did. He discovered America is what he did. He was a brave Italian explorer. And in this house, Christopher Columbus is a hero. End of story. On this show, Christopher Columbus is a hero. End of story. Absolutely right. Crack the beers for Brett. Guzzle down your leftist tears. I will see you all tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. The Michael Knowles Show is produced by Senia Villarreal. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. 
Senior Producer, Jonathan Hay. Our Supervising Producer, Mathis Glover. And our Technical Producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Jim Nickel. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and Makeup is by Jesua Olvera. The Michael Knowles Show is a Daily Wire Forward Publishing production. Copyright Forward Publishing 2018.